0: Today, as has already been mentioned, as you may have already seen, we are coming into Matthew chapter 4, which is the temptations of Christ. And, I, and this isn't necessarily a disclaimer, but this is one of those passages which is talked about a lot, but to really get into the heart of what it is, to really get into the heart of how it affects us, it's not a very enjoyable topic, because after all, who enjoys talking about their temptations? No one else? We all enjoy talking about the temptations of others, we enjoy talking about the response of that, but these kind of sermons, and indeed this sermon, at least I, I pray, um, I hope will convict issues with this, which, if that makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry, uh, and now I have to repent because I'm really not, but that's the story. It's one of those things that make us confront, indeed, what both fortunately makes us human and unfortunately what makes us human. And that's actually one of the first things that we need to understand when it comes to especially these parts of Scripture, is the humanity behind it. You see, it's not on uh, accident that both Matthew and Luke include the temptation of Jesus immediately after the genealogy, pretty much. Matthew obviously starts with the genealogy, so everything begins, everything is based on the genealogy, and we talked about that at the beginning of the year. But Luke also makes a point. He waits till chapter 3 to give us the genealogy of Jesus, gives us a slightly different genealogy, but then goes right into the temptations of Jesus. And the thing is about Scripture is that it's arranged on purpose. It don't, these weren't just haphazardly put together, and nor were they written um, just as... Oh, this, this, this. They were written very much on purpose. And so even the first question of why this story is here gives us an interesting insight into this bit of Scripture. The thing is, many of us are very much okay when it comes to thinking of who Jesus is, when it comes to thinking of, of how we um, manifest himself, many of us are very much okay, even such more than okay, of acknowledging his divinity, meaning the fact that, put one way, he's 100% man and 100% God. Put another way from Scripture, he's God incarnate, that he emptied himself, says Philippians 2, humbling himself to take on the form of man, but yet believing from Scripture that he, meaning the Son, was with God in the beginning. Meaning Genesis one was part of the Godhead that created all things, and part of the um, way that God has ran His world, run His world all throughout history. He didn't become manifest as a human until He did, but He was always there. We're very much okay with explaining that part, uh, and, and acknowledging that part, and believing that part. Other things, though, that we need to make sure that we fully believe about Jesus. Is indeed the part of humanity which is human. We're very much okay with saying, yes, Jesus is God, but we're less okay, even if we want to believe it, teaching it, believing it, and acting, that Jesus was indeed human as well, and had the potential to be a human, and I'll say it this way on purpose, just like you and me. The potential, I say. This is important because. Jesus didn't just pop into history and start teaching as a prophet as we like to imagine he did. What's important to realize is that Jesus, like all of us, didn't just begin when he was wisdom and knowledge. There's a reason that Jesus chose, along with God and the Spirit, to come in the same way that all humans do. came as a baby and had to be grown both in physical stature, mental ability, emotional intelligence, but also grow And wisdom and knowledge, as Luke 2 says. Why this is important is because while we're very much okay uh, with... ah, I forgot this one. Hebrews says, (laughs) flat out, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Acknowledging only Jesus' divinity in this really doesn't help us with this. Acknowledging Jesus' humanity as well is the bridge because this allows us to realize that not only did Jesus as Lord and Messiah come with the full authority divinity, the full authority of godliness, but when we look at this story and what it teaches us, when we look at the scripture and what it teaches us, we realize that Jesus also has the full authority of humanity. Being able to say that, yes, I am God incarnate, and I give you this command, but also as one of you, I give you this command. This is important, as we'll talk about in just a minute, because what happens when someone who obviously cannot do what they're asking you to do, asks you to do something? What happens as parents when we tell our kids not to lie, and then they catch us lying? What happens when we advocate for exercise, but yet... um, Some of us, more obviously than not, don't as much. We approach this story realizing that not only does Jesus have the full authority of God, but because he was tempted as a man, he brings the authority of humanity. In fact, we need to realize that the only one who could ever be full brunt and experience the full temptation of temptation was one who experienced it yet did not sin. You know, it doesn't take much to blow one of us over. Exercise, looms, or look, my wife made cookies. She's a baker, for crying out loud. I'm choosing the cookies. (laughs) Only one who is sinless and pure could experience the full weight and magnitude of temptation. And men have the authority to tell us what to do to overcome. With that, we turn to the text. This text teaches us a couple things, which I managed to alliterate today. You're welcome, for those of you to whom that matters. It teaches us several things, but I want to sum things up in three things. The appearance, the awareness, and anticipation of this text. Appearance, awareness, and anticipation. If you're writing notes, this is more or less your outline. We'll get to it, come back around at the end, Jesus comes after he is blessed by the Spirit in bodily form as a dove, and then is led by the same Spirit out to the wilderness. This is a place in Israel between the plateau of Israel and the Dead Sea called the Jeshuman, the 35 by 15 mile rectangle, square mile rectangle of wilderness, of nothing, of desert. Of a place where you are alone. This is actually to this day, this place is still not inhabited because of the harsh conditions out there. There is very little water, if any. There is very little food. Actually, this is a now nah, brother. Yeah. There's a really cool thing about green pastures. This is actually green pastures when it comes to Psalm twenty three, believe it or not. Some of you won't be able to move past that though. I'll come back to that later, later on. Look that up. This is a place that is harsh. This is a place which is isolated. This is a place to where you feel the full weight. There's very little shade, very little trees. It is wilderness. There's nothing out there. And it's this place in which Jesus, after he was blessed by God at his baptism, was led by the Spirit to be tempted I say. How many of us, I mean, you don't have to show hands, have ever been truly alone in the middle of nowhere? As in, you don't know where the nearest human is. How many of us have been in a place to where you don't know where the next water is? Probably none of us. That's important to realize because when it comes to the text, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Notice Luke and Matthew put this little bit on the end. He was hungry. Why is that? It's kind of like a, well, yeah, of course. This is part of Jesus' humanity. He goes out and fasts 40 days and 40 nights, which actually is possible. Humans have done, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. All the two other people in the Bible fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. But I've noticed that Matthew only put this detail. He was hungry by the end of it. It's not just the fact that Jesus is going out and doing it and being able to say, yes, this is fine. I like this detail because think about it. If you believe some of our children, they're about to famish away after, what, 42 seconds after lunch? Some of us aren't much better. How is the longest you've ever been without food, intentionally or unintentionally? I like this detail because, especially by the end of this time, you need to imagine that Jesus is feeling the full weight of who he is. He is emaciated, most likely. He is weak. He is hungry. He is thirsty. He is not feeling the best. And it's at this time that Satan comes and says, Jesus, I'd like to have a conversation with you. What is that conversation? It's a conversation that is intentionally given, I think, immediately after Jesus, once again, is blessed by God. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The Spirit descends on him like a dove and leads him then to this place. And the tempter said to him, You are the Son of God. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, we can talk about the conditional if, which in a way means since, which is a temptation of its own. But also just look at what he says. He says, after your blessing, after God has commanded and said, yes, you are my son, after you've been led by the Spirit, after you've been blessed by the Spirit, they lead you out into this place, this place of isolation, this place of, of quarantine, almost dare I say, this place where there is nothing how about you? you're hungry? you gotta be hungry. How about you? makes bread? Now, I have to be honest here. If this for me, which I'm glad it wasn't, I would have been tempted to hope, make a whole stink at bakery out there, complete with donuts and apple claws and eclairs. And, I mean, it's like, if you've got the power, it's like, why not? Because what is he saying here? If you are the Son of God, Jesus was just blessed by his Father. Jesus, Satan is saying, if you really are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. If, what do you mean, I'll show you. Not to mention I am a little bit hungry. You see, this isn't just about Jesus' physical need. And I actually flat out reject any commentary which says this is simply an appeal to flesh. That's part of it, to be sure. But what's at the heart of what, Jesus, of what Satan says, if you really are the Son of God? What's the imposed implied questions? If you really are the Son of God, if you really are the Blessed One, do you think God would have left you out here? Seems seemed a little lonely. It seemed a little hot. Seems a little bit like God isn't with you anymore. He's letting you suffer here hungry and thirsty under the weight of, of all this. Believe what you want, Jesus. But if you're the Son of God, make them make some bread. You see it's not just about the physical need. What was the temptation? The bigger temptation here, yes, physical need was a part of it, but the bigger temptation here is discontentment with where God has led you. The bigger temptation here is dissatisfaction with where you find yourself in present life. God, if I was really following you, why on earth would I end up here? Self-will. I would never have chosen this for me, so therefore, you obviously don't know what you're doing. I'm not saying Jesus thought this, but this is implied in the question. God, okay, fine, if I have to do this, fine, let's get let's get on with it. By the way, let's, let's be done. What was the bigger temptation of Satan asking Jesus, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread? The bigger temptation was for Jesus to doubt God's love and care for him in his vulnerability and need, which included God providing for his food, which he would preach about just a few verses later. You see this question. Jesus is alone. He's emaciated. He's weak. He's hungry. Satan comes and says, If you really were the Son of God, why would you be here? Looks like God isn't by you. Looks like God has kind of forsaken you a little bit, huh? Now, is it a sin to eat? No. But what was the bigger sin that Jesus is tempted by? Not only the fact of submitting to His own discontent, dissatisfaction, self-will, and impatience, But he becomes what I just referenced a minute ago. You see, in just a chapter or so, what will Jesus teach? He will teach his disciples. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of of, more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your life. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Verse, 11, verse 31. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your Heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The thing is, if Jesus submitted to the temptation, not only would He have broken and sinned, but He would have been able to come to this point And teach this and have exactly no impact. Because what would his disciples have said? Yeah, Jesus, you can say that, you can teach that, but for God's sakes, if you're hungry, all you have to do is poof, look, a loaf of bread, poof, a donut, poof, a whatever they eat for fun in that time. You don't know what it's like, Jesus. You don't know what it's like being human. You don't know what it's like to suffer. You don't know what it's like to be hungry. You don't know what it's like to feel abandoned by God. You don't know what it's like to be alone. Except Jesus can say, Yes, I do. Jesus can say, Yes, I do. He does know what it's like to feel isolated from God. He does know what it's like to to wonder about where God has led him. He does know what it's like to truly be tempted and truly be hungry. Jesus is not just a sympathizer. Yes, that's bad for you. He is the true empathizer, being able to say, Yes, I know what it's like to be like you. We talk about bread here. But Jesus knows what it's like. Prostitutes were rampant. Do you think Jesus didn't struggle with sexual temptation? He didn't have finances. In fact, he made a point not to collect them. But do you think it would have been easier if someone wanted to say, Hey, I believe in your mission. Here's 200 gold coins. Buy yourself something nice. We tend to say, Well, he's God. He has a mission. Think about it if you're a human for a second. Isn't that tempting? He has a following of people. We all know what pride does. Jesus knows what it's like to be like us. Therefore, the question that this first bit teaches us is, what is our temptation? And yes, any of us ever been discontent with where we are? Anyone ever been dissatisfied with God, wanting to think that our self-will is better than what God's will might be? Anyone been impatient with God to hurry up and do it for crying out loud? Has anyone in this room or online you've been watching ever been tempted to doubt God's love and care for us when we are vulnerable and in need? or am I the only one? Jesus responds and I missed this slide for a while, but he responds) <laughs> That man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that references the time in Israel's history when they were <laughs> rebelling in the wilderness. And God provided. And we'll come back to that in just a second. It talks about the fact of Trust for who God is and what he's done for you. But let's move on. Matthew 5, 4, 5, and 6. The devil took him to the holy city and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, once again, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What's the temptation here? The temptation is not only, as many commentaries say, let everyone see, because obviously there's probably a crowd at the temple. And there's people that... This would be the ultimate sign of the Messiah. He's quoting Psalm 91. He throws himself down. God intervenes and saves him. Yes, this is God's chosen son. But I think it goes more than that. It's not just about pride and vanity of let everyone see, but also I believe Jesus, uh, Satan is telling Jesus, asking Jesus, tempting Jesus, let everyone see if you believe who you are. You see that question? If you're the son of God, jump off. Either you'll die... Or God will confirm to you, too, who you really are. This is out of, as I mentioned, Psalm 91. But Jesus responds, again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But Satan is quoting here. It's from Psalm 91, which we we'll get to in a second. But what Jesus responds was with the time in Deuteronomy 16, referencing Exodus 17, which is when the Israelites were in the middle of the wilderness. They were out of water. And in essence, you can read the story for yourself. In essence, they were unhappy with Moses' leadership. They were unhappy with where he led them. In essence, he's saying, look, if you really serve God, let him show up and save us, because we're tired of him being a little bit distant. Jesus is quoting a historical time. Where God responded with having Moses strike the water, strike the rock and have the water. But in essence, the question that they were asking is, are you really there for us, God? But Jesus responded, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. What is he referring to from here? Well, Psalm 91, this isn't the full context. Psalm 91 says, if you say the Lord is my refuge and then you make the most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in your hands that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan actually has more or less the proper context. It says, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. He will guard you in all of your ways. Tested Jesus. The key here, though, is noticing this one. Guard you in all of your ways. What does that mean? Well, it means someone who has made their ways God's ways. Someone who is committed to the path that God has laid out for them. It doesn't mean someone who has gone off their own way. It means someone who is committed to God's will. So what does that mean? Well, many of us know, unfortunately from personal experience, that yes, sometimes harm does come to us physically. Sometimes disaster comes to us. And indeed... Sometimes our foot strikes against a stone. What the psalmist is saying is that ultimately, ultimately, while there may be things in this world which do happen to us, which do cause pain and suffering, you are safe in God. You are safe in His provision, even if that means that we are are burnt up, that we die, that we are crushed literally physically in this world, you are still safe and no harm shall ultimately come to you in God. And we don't like that because we would prefer a pain-free physical life, wouldn't we? But ultimately God says, ultimately in me, regardless of what happens, you are safe and no harm shall come to you with how long eternity is I would go for that, although that's hard to realize in the moment. What was the temptation for Jesus to prove himself, but also to prove who God is to himself? What's the temptation to test God's faithfulness as well as his own faithfulness to what he believes? Put another way, he found it, what's the temptation to believe it necessary to test God in purely arbitrary ways? I'm going to hit this one a little bit harder a little bit later, so I'm going to move on for now, but think about that one. The temptation to believe it necessary to test God in purely arbitrary ways. The thing is that Jesus knows that Satan does not realize, and I don't think can realize, is that divine rescue may indeed actually come through suffering, and in Jesus' case, especially death. Think about that paradox for a second. With how much Jesus in Scripture talks about how through suffering you shall be made perfect, through pain you should be made whole divine rescue and salvation may actually come through suffering and death. The thing is that Jesus knows that Satan can never realize is that one day, whenever... The crowd is wanting to test Jesus, to tempt Jesus. If you really are the Son of God, Jesus, come down off the cross. But what Satan doesn't realize, what the crowd doesn't realize, that Jesus knows is that he'll be proving himself as Messiah by the very act of staying on the cross, by the very act of throwing him down upon earth to be killed on a tree. Jesus proves his Messiahship, proves that he's Savior, and proves his faithfulness not only to the world, And indeed to God. And we don't kid ourselves that Jesus was never tempted to not do this. After all, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, God, if there is any other way to do this, any other way to do this, but what? Not my will, but yours be done. Guard me, God, not in my ways, but in your ways. The question is, once again, what is our temptation? Do we ever have the temptation to prove ourselves, to prove who God is, to test God's faithfulness, to test our own faithfulness? Do we ever believe it necessary to test God in purely arbitrary ways? God, if you really are God, do this. Finally, oops, I forgot to put the animation on there. Let's read it from the Bible. Starting in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be God, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the God, Lord your God and only him only shall you serve. Now, with this one, there are details that we tend to get lost in. Is this a visceral, physical experience? Did he really go up to the top of a high mountain? If that was true, how did he create all the kingdoms of the world to be in front of him? Was this a vision? Was this... There's commentaries and there's thought that says this lends itself to a vision more than a real experience. But I think the thing is we have to take away with whatever the details. This was real to Jesus and however it happened. This was real in his mind and real in his heart to see all the kingdoms in the world and to have Satan offer to him authority and power. Which, Speaking of that, there's the other detail. Could Satan really do that? well, that's a fair question because when it comes to the description of this world there are a lot of scriptures for instance, Ephesians 2 the prince, he's called the prince of the power of the air Ephesians 6, he controls the powers of evil and the wicked 1 John five nineteen, it says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one John twelve thirty one, the prince of the powers of this world there's an argument to be made that well, this world and everything in it is Satan's and therefore everything else is God's well no because if you read all these verses, and a lot more, this is just what I had room for, Genesis three, Job one, Psalm two, Matthew eleven, twenty-eight, Revelation twelve, Revelation twenty, you see something which we don't quite understand, but we have to believe, in that God only gives Satan the power to do what he does. He doesn't give them ultimate authority over this world, he doesn't give him ultimate power over this over this land or over this earth. But he only gives them he's out on a leash in a sense. For whatever reason. Now you ask, well, why would ever God do that? That's not the point of this sermon. <laughs> the whole point is, though, Satan is not all powerful like God is. Satan is only powerful in the box that God allows him to be in. We know that from Job. We know that from Genesis. We know that even in this one, Jesus says, go away, and he goes. The world all throughout history refers more to the rebellion and the sin committed by the people rather than the place itself. Everything, Psalm 110 even says that the world is God's footstool. No, everything is God's and everything is Jesus. And Matthew 28 says that all power, all authority in this world is given to me. So, can Satan give Jesus all authority? Yes, over those who have rejected him. But no, not in the sense of the totality. In that case, then, what was the temptation? The temptation was to bring in a kingdom. Not his kingdom, but a kingdom. Easy way. Have you seen Staples, the easy button? This is what Satan is offering Jesus. Not just power, not just authority. Jesus has and will have that. But to do it in a way which avoids the suffering, that avoids the temptation that avoids everything that is unpleasant. What's the temptation? To avoid pain, avoid suffering, to take the easy route, to seek power, easy power and glory. Put another way, to seek the easy reward without the journey and all that comes with it. Jesus knew. I don't know how much he knew, but Jesus knew what his life would culminate in. Jesus knew and yet chose it. I think this temptation still would have been tempting. It says, Be gone, for it is when you shall worship the Lord your God, and only Him shall you serve. And that's the rub here. The kingdom that Satan offers would not have been one of God and would not have been the kingdom of heaven, but would have been a kingdom that's no better and no worse than any other earthly kingdom of the world. Yet it would have been easier. It would have been pain-free. Jesus would have been adored The devil left him. Behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Once again, the question is: What is our temptation? Are we ever tempted to avoid the pain, avoid the suffering, avoid doing what's necessary but hard? Are we ever tempted to seek the evil reward without the journey and all that comes with it? See why I said this isn't a fun thing to preach. It is necessary. The thing is also I want you to realize before we delve into application that Luke put in, puts in an interesting detail that devil left him for a more opportune time. <laughs> Being human and having a few temptations of my own, I'm pretty sure that this means that temptation never stopped for Jesus. We tend to read this chapter and go, yep, tempted past it, he's gone, he's good. Satan would even tempt Jesus from the foot of the cross. And I don't think that Satan ever truly stopped tempting Jesus. Because being human, there are always things that could tempt me and you. question I guess here would be when are the more opportune times in our lives? It's not hard it's not easy to be tempted right here, if you're sitting here in church listening to preach out of the Bible, surrounded by Christians. When is your opportune time? (laughs) So remember, I said the application was going to come in three A's. Here we go. What does the Scriptures teach us that we can take away with? Well, one, it matters what our appearance of Jesus is. And I talked about this at the beginning. It matters if we believe that Jesus was one, all divine, but yet also all human because what this really means is the difference between an untempted Jesus and a truly tempted Jesus now why does this matter it matters because if Jesus is an untempted Jesus the example we have is someone who never has any problems who must always present someone who has it together which has all the answers of the world and who never has anything wrong with their life Do you know anyone like that is anyone really like that but yet we pervade it all the time. I was talking with a dear sister just last night about how this was rampant in her growing up, about how she was never allowed to make mistakes because of the appearance of her parents. And I'm sure it was well-intentioned. I'm not going to talk about anything bad about her parents, but this is pervasive. It's damaging to present, one, that I have no problems, because one, that's a lie, But then, too, it's damaging because no one then can approach you because everyone is saying, well, I have problems there and they don't, so who am I compared to them? The power of Jesus is being able to truly say, I know what it's like and therefore can indeed help you. I know what it's like to deal with this, therefore I can help you. What is our appearance as Christians? What is our appearance as a church? Are we someone? Are we a place to where people can come and say, Man, I am messed up. Or are we a place where we have to come and say, Everything is fine. Everything is blue skies and rainbows and gumdrops from heaven. It matters if we worship the untempted or indeed the tempted Christ. Number two, the awareness of the Awareness of what, exactly? Well, let me ask you this question. And this is an important one. I'm going to give you a minute or two to think on it. I messed stuff up again. <laughs> That's the next one. The awareness of our temptations. When is it that we doubt God's love and care for us and our vulnerability and need? When do we believe it necessary to test God in purely arbitrary ways? I told you I was going to come back to this one. What are some of the ways that we test God? Praying for health, but yet ignoring the rules of health and fitness. Praying for godly children, yet not submitting to raising them in a godly way, a biblical way that's laid out. Praying for good finances whenever we don't obey the rules of good financial stewardship. Praying for conflict-free, impactful church whenever we're not willing to do what is hard and necessary to get there. When do we test God in purely arbitrary ways that is really about our faithfulness or us trying to look for an excuse about who he is the awareness of seeking the easy reward that comes all with it I don't say this to guilt any of you I don't say this to to bombard any of you with scripture we must be aware of when we are tempted for this because awareness in temptation is half the battle knowing when and how and why we are tempted to do these things Which then leads us to our next point, anticipation. Here's the question. When did Jesus choose not to sin? When did Jesus choose not to sin in the wilderness or throughout his life? Let me ask you a question that might help you. How do you do when you wait to the moment of decision to decide to do something moral or immoral? When do you, how do you do when you wait to the moment of an argument to decide how you're going to act? How do you do when you are faced with a moment of cookie or exercise in the moment? I'm seeing some head shaking that is bad. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Jesus chose not to sin long before the situation ever came before Him. And He did what was necessary before to know how He would react in the moment. There's a training, there's an old saying actually in the military, which is true. Um, Let me put this away. Ah. In basic training, they stress you out, they underfeed you, they... Uh, yell at you, they do everything you possibly, they possibly can to stress you out. Why? Mean, although I think some of them enjoy being mean. Greg could probably back me up on that. Maybe you were one of them, Greg. But <laughs> They stress you out in basic training and, and in regular training so that hopefully you will never get that stressed out in operational life. Why? Because the saying that we rise to the occasion... Is not true often enough to me say it, to me to believe it. The truth is, and the military people know this, under pressure you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training. This is true because I've lived it, both in the military and in life. So what does this mean? It means that I challenge us to be a place not just of knowledge, not just of fellowship, and not a place to where we go, How are you? Fine! but a place to where we can come and be a training ground for the kingdom. A place where we deal with, talk about, reckon with real issues that are facing each one of us today. And even if they're not your issue today, you can help someone today. I wouldn't want to know how many people, if I actually had you raise your hands where you wouldn't see, somehow, I wouldn't want to know how many people in here have a pornography addiction. Men and women. Do we talk about it? How many people in here have financial issues? Not just like no lack of money, but don't know how to manage it. Do we talk about it? How many parents in here struggle with the right answer to raise their kids? Do we talk about it? Why not? The church needs to be a training ground. Not just a place of fellowship, but a training ground so that way people can come and get what they need so that way in the moment when sin is knocking at their door, we could have been trained beforehand to make the right choice it matters that Jesus went through this but what Hebrews 12:3 says consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart Jesus has fought and won the war and can lead us in each of our individual battles but we have to be go about it the right way are we do we have the right appearance of who Jesus is are we aware of indeed our struggles and are we willing to put in the work to anticipate how to overcome them I'm with you whoever whoever that is I didn't enjoy this because this sermon speaks too much to my own heart but it speaks to all of our hearts It speaks to simply who we are as humans. And the thing is, if I was just talking about a self-help seminar or just talking about how to have a better life, that's right in. And you'd be like, I agree, but I have no idea how to do it. The thing is, our message doesn't end there. It ends with a Jesus who was able to overcome temptation because of his devotion and training in being God's son. It ends with the spirit that is within each of us and his church in order to help us overcome these battles. And it ends with the ultimate hope of grace and mercy that with those who are struggling, even struggling, there is grace and hope and peace in Jesus Christ. Let us confront these issues, church, but never let's, let us never forget that it's not just doom and gloom, but we strive for the hope that is only found in Jesus. And we can have that hope and others must see that hope in us in order for us to be the people that God needs us to be. Heavenly Father, not a fun sermon to preach, not a fun sermon to hear, but I know that this is needed. I do pray that in whatever way is necessary, we take the words of your Scripture, that we take the words and ways we've been convicted. And don't just... Listen to it, agree with it, and and think that was good. But actually, I pray that we're spurred on to do something. I pray this week that we can have those conversations with each other, that we can be bold in knowing that you have faced all there is, so you can empathize with us. Therefore, we can empathize with each other. I do pray that the church is a place, not only just a hospital for the sick and the sinners but indeed a training ground that we can morph ourselves into actually equipping each other as you command us to do to face this world may we do this by your power the grace of your son the mercy of your spirit and humbly as citizens of your kingdom in Jesus name we pray these things and commit ourselves to these things amen